As most of you know, um, I try to write introductions to my sermons that capture your attention, whether from current events or from history, sports, humor, or personal story, sometimes that all goes together. The the idea is to make you think that I have something uh, interesting to say, something worth hearing. Uh, Yes, of course, it is the Word of God that we study, making our time always worthwhile. But, but let's be honest, we've all heard, and I have sometimes preached, sermons that were less than captivating. So, as I was struggling in my office on Friday morning, I walked out to get yet another cup of coffee, thinking that that might help, and I noticed that Hunter was in his office. First week here, I stopped to see how things were going. We eventually began talking about the text for today, and you can imagine my shock and disappointment when he said, I'm sorry, but I have no Melchizedek songs for Sunday. (laughs) What have you been doing all week? We joked about writing one with a Hebrew cadence. By the way, I went back to my office and Googled Melchizedek songs. You can find anything on the internet. (laughs) And found there is such a song on YouTube, creatively titled, The Melchizedek Song. (laughs) It had a whopping 146 views. I listened to it, making it 147. Trust me, that is about 145 too many. (laughs) So, I thought I would write one. as Hunter works on the music. Fair warning, it may sound a bit like Dr. Seuss. I'm not going to sing it. Hunter's working on the music. So Hebrews 6, you thought difficult to be, but came today of the warning, finally free. To chapter 7, then, we gladly will turn, weary of hearing in hell we may burn. Thankful to know in Christ we're held fast, the soul's sure anchor, to heaven we fly at last. But what is this when to chapter 7 we peer? A man, a name, who in Old Testament rarely appears. A man, a name we can hardly pronounce, a man we are told who most certainly counts. A man, a name called forever Melchizedek, who made Scott's intro most clearly a wreck. (laughs) Come on, that's good. You try rhyming with Melchizedek. King Melchizedek, a priest, a man without peer until Christ should come and finally appear. I didn't copyright it. Feel free to use it. Hunter will quickly learn that anything he says during the week can and will be used against him on Sundays. What do we do with this man named Melchizedek? The author first introduced him to us in chapter 5, verse 6, speaking of Christ's high priesthood, just as he, that is God, says also in another passage, that's Psalm 110, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He says it again in chapter 5, verse 10, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. 
Well, well, then, in the very next verse, the author took a rather lengthy aside to, to give his third severe warning in the book. He, he, he started in, in verse 11, 5 verse 11, saying, Concerning him, that is this Melchizedekian priesthood, we have much to say. There ought to be a lot of songs about Melchizedek. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. He launched into a, that warning challenging his readers not to be dull, be stupid, don't be sluggish, rather be diligent so as to realize the full assurance of our hope found in Christ. Who would have thought that that was tied to Melchizedek? So now having gently shamed, severely warned and greatly encouraged his readers and us, he turns his attention back to Melchizedek. The last chapter, uh, excuse me, the last verse of chapter 6 said, Jesus entered heaven as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we're going to tackle this great man of whom innumerable songs have been written. Now, before I read the text, let me remind you, as I often do, of the purpose of the letter. The author writes to Jewish believers who were facing ever-increasing persecution. As a result, they were considering quitting and returning to Judaism. So he writes both to warn and to encourage them. Well, we looked at three of the five warnings already. Thankfully, the next one doesn't come until chapter 10. But his encouragements go like this. You ready? Jesus is better. He's better than anything this world. Indeed, he is better than anything this universe has to offer. What? He's better than the angels, chapters 1 and 2. Having inherited a, a much better name than they, they are mere messengers, servants of God. Jesus is the very Son of God. He's better than Moses in Joshua chapters 3 and 4. After all, Moses was a servant in the house. <laughs> Jesus is the son over the house. The Old Testament Joshua, well, he led them into the promised land, but the New Testament Joshua named Jesus, he, he, will, he will lead us to our eternal home and to our eternal rest. Not only that, Jesus is better than Abraham. That would cause the, the average Jew to gasp. And the, and the Levitical priesthood, chapters 5 to 7, actually 5 to 10, with, with of course, that, that warning tucked in. But, but you need to know the author is finally getting to the heart, indeed, the meat of his argument. You, you're thinking of returning to the Old Testament Levitical system with its priests and its sacrifices? Know this. Jesus is better than Aaron. He's better than Levi. He's better than the tabernacle. He's de better than the, 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 uh, the, the, the sacrificial system. He's better than every animal that has ever been offered because Jesus is the fulfillment of of all that to which the Old Testament pointed. And he starts by showing us that, yes, Jesus is a priest, but, but, but of a priesthood vastly, forever superior to the Levitical priesthood. So here's the point. Why would you return to the shadow? Why would you return to the types when you now, people of God, People of Christ, you now enjoy the real thing and the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament types. He will actually say it a bit more strongly when we finally get to that next warning. There remains no more sacrifice for sin outside of Christ. So he started back at the end of chapter 4, actually, beginning of chapter 5, saying that Jesus is our great high priest. But now he will say... 
His priesthood is an eternal, superior priesthood to to the one under Aaron, to, to the Levitical priests, even to the Old Testament tabernacle and later the temple. Which brings us to our text, Hebrews 7, verses 1 and following say this. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, this Melchizedek, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without mother, excuse me, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made... Like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this uh, man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have, have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is from their brothers, although these are descended from Abraham. But, but the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. This is incredible. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one received them of whom it is witness that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father, when Melchizedek met him on the edges of the seats, are you? Again, let me tell you at the outset the point of the text. Jesus is superior to even the Old Testament Levitical religious system given by God because he is ultimately the fulfillment of that system and he is that to which all of it pointed. If that is true, why consider returning there? Further, for our purposes, I would say two things today. First, it is popular, I know, it is popular to abandon Christianity today and to embrace another religion or even atheism. Popular. Some of you may be considering doing just that. It seems kind of the cool thing to do. Bandwagonish. I made that word up. Everybody's doing it. And if I want to be part of the in crowd, listen very carefully. Jesus is superior, certainly to atheism, but he is superior to any world religion, those that don't come from God, why, he's even superior to the Old Testament religion, which was given by God. So don't quit the faith. Don't quit Christianity. Listen, there is nothing else. To whom else will you turn? Here's the Outline for the morning, we're going to answer, ask and answer three questions. First, who is this Melchizedek? And then, how is it that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham? And then, how is Melchizedek like Jesus? Or how is Melchizedek a type of Christ? Now, again, the, the author's point is Jesus is better than the Old Testament 
Levitical system. So he starts by proving that Jesus' priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. That's the point today. But but we need to learn who Melchizedek is and then learn how uh, he is superior to Abraham and therefore Levi and the Levitical system that comes from Abraham. And then we'll close with how Melchizedek as a priest is like, don't miss the order, how Melchizedek is like our great high priest named Jesus. I know we have a lot of Levi's running around. Popular name, got a lot of Levi's running around, got a lot of Levi's in this church. If your kid's name's Levi, that's great. We need some more Melchizedek's running around. It's another goal I have for today's sermon. I want some Melchizedek's. When I finish with the sermon today, I think you'll agree with me. I've told you before that we only hear of this guy in Genesis 14. Then he disappears for a thousand years until Psalm 110, where God makes a messianic promise. Then he disappears for another thousand years until Hebrews 5, 6, and 7, where God fulfilled that messianic promise a thousand years before, and he fulfills it in Jesus. The point, because when God makes a promise, he cannot lie, and he will fulfill the promise, no matter how many thousands of years it's been. So let's look at Genesis 14 to see this story. I'll summarize the first part. You'll remember last week that I said that Abraham's story goes from Genesis 12 to Genesis 25. He's a very important figure, the father or patriarch of the Israelites. And ultimately, he becomes our father because he becomes the father of faith. In Genesis 12, per God's command, Abraham traveled to Canaan from Ur of the Chaldeans. He took his nephew Lot with him. After some time in Egypt, in chapter 13, Abraham Abraham and Lot had to separate because they'd grown to be so wealthy that the land couldn't support, support their combined livestock. So getting to choose, Lot chose, remember, the well-watered plain of the Jordan Valley and moved toward Sodom. Well, Sodom and the surrounding cities were under the rule of a coalition of foreign kings to the east of the Jordan led by a king named Chedorlaomer. But they rebelled, that, that is Sodom and the surrounding cities. They rebelled, paid tribute for 12 years, 13th year rebelled, 14th year Chedorlaomer led his group of kings against Sodom and their group of kings. Chedorlaomer won and captured Lot as well as many other inhabitants of Sodom and carried them off to captivity. When Abraham heard about it, he pursued Chedorlaomer with 318 of his servants and defeated him right outside to the north of Damascus. He brought the captives and all of the plunder back from the battle, and it is there that we pick up the story. Genesis 14, verse 17 says, Then after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, that's interesting, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaba, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest, first time in the Bible that a priest is mentioned. Now he was a priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram, for his name we changed to Abraham, blessed be Abraham of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He, that is Abraham, gave him, that is Melchizedek, a tenth of all 
Then, um, excuse me, the king of Sodom, then said to Abraham, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord, notice, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. That's interesting. That's the name, that's the title for God that Melchizedek used, meaning they worshiped the same God. And I will not take a thread or sandal thong or anything else that is yours for fear you would say, I have made Abram rich. So there you have it. That's the only place we learn of Melchizedek. Until that short verse in Psalm 110 where we find the Messiah will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Then he disappears until Hebrews. What does the author of Hebrews say about this guy? Several thoughts. First, he reminds us of his story in Genesis 14, that he met Abraham upon returning from his victory over the kings and his rescue of Lot. Second, we are reminded of this man's unique titles. We've talked about this before, but you don't typically mix politics and religion. That is, kings were not normally priests, and vice versa, priests were not normally kings. It's certainly true within Judaism. Kings came from what tribe? The tribe of Judah. And priests came from what tribe? The tribe of Levi. And you didn't mix those. Now, we learned that there was significance to his kingship by those titles. First, his name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And second, Salem, which is probably Jerusalem, Psalm 72, means peace, so he is also king of peace. He was king of righteousness, he's king of peace. In fact, I would say, suggest that you can have peace, not true peace, without true righteousness. So, so we notice first he, was, first he was king of righteousness, then he was king of peace. Isaiah 32 tells us that peace is the fruit of of righteousness. Once you get that, you can have a false peace, but if you don't have righteousness, it's not a true peace. We'll come back to that. Further, in addition to being a king, we find, strangely, that he was also a priest. But notice, not a priest of one of the many pagan awful gods of Canaan. No, he was a priest of God Most High. Genesis 14 tells us, possessor of heaven and earth. In fact, the reason that I read the text through the conversation with the king of Sodom is so that you could see Abraham referred to his God, the true God, with the very same title. We are supposed to notice Melchizedek worshipped the true God. That's interesting. Of, Of course... Jesus wouldn't be a priest of the Melchizedekian order if, if that order worshipped the false god. It's not like they would be the order of the Baals or the Ashtros. It was of the God Most High. Interesting to note. I'll make a point of application. Even in a culture of pagan idolatry, gross, Canaan was awful, gross immorality, in the name of religion, prostitution and sexual immorality, violence, child sacrifice, atrocious false religions. There was one, a king and a priest who worshiped the true God in the midst of that pagan idolatry, as can we in increasingly, in an increasingly immoral, violent, ungodly culture. Listen, 
the news reports should not surprise you. It should, we should redouble our efforts to remain faithful and true to the living God in the midst of our nation going to hell in a handbasket. So, thinking about quitting, worshiping in another religion, becoming an atheist, because it's becoming the popular thing to do. Remember Melchizedek. Finally, we see the author of Hebrews suggests the silence of Hebrews 14 is as important as the statements. What do I mean? Come to verse 3. We read that he was without father without mother, without genealogy. He has no birth recorded. Further, he has no death recorded. But he's one like the Son of God. He remains a priest perpetually, that is forever. Now, now Genesis didn't say any of those things. In fact, they were silent on that, but it is of that that the author takes note. And you should know this is highly unusual. You see, to be a king or a priest, your paternity must be verified. You'll remember the Levitical priest must come from the tribe of Levi, of the house of Aaron. See, there was a tribe, but within that tribe of Levi, there was the household of Aaron, and it was from the household of Aaron that the priests would come. In fact, in Nehemiah, when they returned from Babylonian captivity, some Levites were not able to serve as priests because they could not prove their genealogy, their paternity. Again, not not all Levites were priests, but all priests were Levites. And yet this priest, this priest, he had no genealogy. We don't even know his parents. We don't know when he was born. We don't know when he died. We don't even know if he died. You see, from that, from a literary perspective, he remained a priest forever. That's important. His priesthood remained in perpetuity because we have no record of his death. That doesn't mean he didn't die, but we have no record of it. And as such, he was made like the Son of God. That is, from a literary perspective, he's eternal. Notice, made like the Son of God, not the other way around. Meaning, when we get to our third point, Melchizedek is like Jesus not the other way around. And would you hear what I'm saying? It's not like that God sat in heaven and, and, and looked around and said, you know what? I, I, I think Mel, this guy, Melchizedek, he's a cool dude. I think I will make Jesus like him. No. Every type was made so to be like Jesus because Jesus is, I start to say cool, he's beyond cool. So who was this guy? Because of silence, much speculation has abounded through the centuries. Some have suggested that he was an angel, some rabbinic writings. Others have suggested that he was actually Shem. See how that name sounds familiar? Like the son of Noah, Shem, Ham, Shem, Japheth. You see, if you run the genealogies, it is speculated that he was still alive at this time. The challenge is the incompleteness of the genealogical records. And when I say that, the genealogical records are not wrong. They are just incomplete. It could have been many, many years after his death. Besides, the text does not say he was Shem. That would have been easier to rhyme. It's Melchizedek. One of the most popular guesses is 
this comes from the Eastern Orthodox Church primarily, is that he was the pre-incarnate Christ himself. That is, when he, he was Jesus before Jesus came to this earth some 2,000 years later. The problem with that is he was made one like the Son of God. The text does not say that he was the Son of God. All that we really know is what is said in Genesis and Hebrews. He was a king priest of the true God. He was king of righteousness and peace. He was king of Salem, likely Jerusalem. He met Abraham on Abraham's return from rescuing Lot. And and a couple of important things happened during that meeting, which leads us to our next point. How was Melchizedek greater than Abraham? Verses 4 to 10. Notice how the author begins. Now observe how great this man was. How do we determine his greatness in these few short verses? A couple of very important ways. First, Abraham, and just to make sure that we understand, I'm not talking about just any Abraham, but Abraham the patriarch. With the possible exception of Moses, this is the most important man in Israel's history. After all, he was the progenitor, he was the patriarch, he was the start of the nation. And yet, this Abraham, the patriarch Abraham, paid a tithe or a tenth to the man, uh, 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 to this man of all of the choicest, don't miss that, the choicest spoils. You see, typically upon returning from battle, the victors would give a tenth or a tithe of the spoils to their gods through the priests as a recognition that their God had provided the victory. Well, here, Abraham pays a tenth to this particular priest. And notice, not just any tenth, but the, the choices. Let's pile it all up, let's put the best stuff on top, and let's give him a tenth of that right off the top. And Melchizedek, notice, says, blessed be God who gave you the victory. By doing this, Abraham was noting that this man was a true priest of the true God and therefore superior. That's the author's point. The author then reminds us of, uh, of the system of tithing within the nation of Israel for their priests. The sons of Levi w- w- would collect a tithe from the other tribes. Okay, you got 12 tribes and, and 11 would pay their, uh, their tithe to the, the tribe of Levi. The, Levi the, the Levites would then take a tenth of that and give them to the priests. So the Levites and the priests lived off the tithe. Notice, from their own brothers. In other words, they were descendants of Abraham. That's good. We're all brothers here. So fine, we can support the, the priesthood. So, 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 so tithing was based on genealogy. But, but, but this man was not a descendant of Abraham. In fact, he is without genealogy. We have no idea who he was, yet he received a tithe from Abraham. That's not all. Abraham, when Abraham was returning and met up with Melchizedek, Melchizedek blessed Abraham the one who had received the promise, just so you make, I'm still talking about the patriarch, the one who had received the promises, again, highlighting how important Abraham was, but without any dispute, verse 7, the lesser is blessed by the greater. So the greater Melchizedek blessed the lesser Abraham. It's time to gasp. No, no, no one's greater than Abraham, than Father Abraham. Father, we sing it. Father Abraham had many sons. I'm one of them. So you remember that? We don't sing Father Melchizedek. Kids couldn't even pronounce it. Greater. Look at that, verse 8. 
the case of the Levitical priesthood, these were mortal priests who, who received tithes until they died. In fact, they only served from age 20 to age 50, 30 years until they went into retirement. But they eventually died. This one who received tithes from Abraham, well, the story doesn't record his death and there's a sense from which he lives on. That's the point. Talking about tithing. So let me stop right here. Just a moment, take an aside. Some of you are expecting me about now to preach a seven-week series on stewardship and tithing. Send your money to God. That's spelled S-C-O-T-T. That's a joke. Someone to use this passage to say, as Abraham paid tithes before the law was given, as the people of God paid tithes after the law was given in the Old Testament, and, and the priestly order of which Jesus is a part received tithes, so also should the New Testament people of God pay tithes through the church. Listen, that may be true, but that is not the purpose of this text. It might be right truth, wrong address. The purpose of mentioning the tithe is to prove the superiority of Melchizedek to Abraham and therefore the superiority of Christ to the Levitical priests. All that to say, should we pay a tithe? That is 10% of what God gives us? Perhaps. But I do not think that we can use this text to prove it. Rather, the principle in the New Testament is sacrificial, cheerful giving. Recognizing that... We are but stewards. He owns it all. It's all his anyway. And we give as a response of worship. 10%? That ought to be the starting point for followers of Jesus. That's another time, another sermon series. Notice and decide. Notice verses 9 and 10. The author makes a bit of a leap, and he, but he acknowledges that it is a leap. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who would later receive tithes, paid tithe. can you believe it, to Melchizedek, because he was as yet unborn, that still in Abraham's loins, we would say like there's a twinkle in his father's eyes. <laughs> and so when Abraham paid tithe, there's a sense in which Levi did as well. So get those three points. How was Melchizedek greater th than Abraham and thereby Levi, he received tithes from Abraham, who thereby acknowledges his superiority and his priesthood of the true and the living God. He blessed Abraham, and the greater always blesses the lesser. In fact, we're going to sing a song here in just a minute, bless the Lord, and you're going to go, wait a minute, bless greater. The word bless is used in two ways. When we're talking about blessing God, that simply means praising the Lord. But when it's talking about him blessing us, it's the greater blessing the lesser. He's not praising us. And third, the genealogical record, by literary silence, there is a sense in which while those Levitical priests die, Melchizedek did not. He is a priest in perpetuity. So all of that, and you go, man, I'm glad I came today. All that brings us to our third point, which also serves as our conclusion. So, so how is Melchizedek like Jesus? Don't miss that. It's not like Jesus was made like Melchizedek. Rather, Melchizedek in, in 
foreshadowing the Messiah to come was made to be like Jesus. How is Melchizedek a type with Jesus being the ultimate fulfillment? Several thoughts. First, Jesus, don't miss it, is king of righteousness and king of peace. Hallelujah. We remember the prophecy in Isaiah 9 that says he would be called the prince of peace. We remember that when he returns on the white horse, he will have a sash on his chest that says king of kings and lord of lords, and it will be inscribed on his thigh. And we remember, we remember that by his righteous, perfect life, through faith, we receive his righteousness because we remember in order to be reconciled to God, we must have a righteousness, and we know we do not have any. And so he becomes our righteousness, and thereby we make peace with God. You see, if it was left to you, big trouble. Romans 5 says it this way, therefore, having been justified, that is made righteous by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. King of righteousness first. King of peace Isaiah 32, the fruit of righteousness is peace. Charles Spurgeon said it like this. He had a way with words. Jesus knew that he could not be king of peace to us till, first of all, he had woven a perfect righteousness in the loom of his life and dyed it in his own heart's blood in his death. But that's again. Second, Jesus is both king and priest. We understand his kingship, but Hebrews, over and over, for the next several chapters, will make clear his priesthood as our great high priest, offering himself, people, as an offering for our sins. Third, Jesus is eternal. He is also without beginning of days and by his resurrection without end of days. And so his high priesthood is, not just in a literary perspective, his high priesthood is truly eternal. Fourth, Jesus is therefore without father or mother, meaning without genealogy. Now, now, of course, we read of his human genealogy in Matthew 1 and Luke 3. In fact, the author will make a point of saying uh, next week that that he is of the human tribe of of Judah. And of course, his father is is his father, the, the God of heaven. But because He is eternal. There is a sense in which he is without genealogy. And he certainly didn't have a priestly genealogy required of a Levitical priesthood. Fifth, the author's main point. Jesus is superior to Levi, Aaron, and the Levitical priesthood and that entire system. This will be his point in chapters to come. He is superior because he is the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament types. They are mere shadows. We have the glory of his presence. It is not something that we look forward to with, with, through shadows. We know it fully because he has accomplished his work. Sixth, he the greater, don't miss this, by his life, death, and resurrection, blesses us, the infinitely lessers. He is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham through a descendant of yours, Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. 
Seventh and finally, and I am going to take a bit of liberty with the text. Others did. While the author of Hebrews does not mention it, when Melchizedek met Abraham in Genesis 14, he brought what? Bread and wine. I want to make too much of this, but consider Jesus, our great high priest of the Melchizedekian order, came to bring bread and wine through his body and blood. And through communion, the Lord's Supper, we partake of those elements to remember the new covenant that Jesus brought. We will do that next week. Let me finish with this final thought. Melchizedek inaugurated a priesthood, an order of which Jesus is a part As Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, as his priesthood is greater than Levi's, so also Jesus. He's greater, in fact. He's greater than Abraham. In John chapter 8, Jesus was having a conversation with some Pharisees and told them that Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing his, that is Jesus' day. He, Abraham, saw it and was glad. That's a little confusing. When did Abraham see Jesus' day? Was it when the promises were made? To to include the one which said that through a descendant of his, all the nations of the world would be blessed? Abraham believed God, and and, in this promise of the gospel, that's what it was, was credited to him as righteousness? Is that when he saw Jesus' day? Perhaps. Or was it later when he offered the promised son on the altar and God himself provided a ram in his place? Did Abraham see the gospel of substitutionary atonement right there, perhaps? Or was it here? When a priest of the God Most High appeared to him with bread and wine, symbols of the new covenant, and blessed him, did he see Jesus' day and his priesthood then when he would offer his own body and blood for the forgiveness of sin? I don't know. It seems to me that Abraham had many opportunities to see Jesus and his gospel. He saw it and was glad. My brothers and sisters, here's the point. We don't look forward to something. Does that point to Jesus? Does that? We look back and we have the, sh- the sure anchor of the gospel to anchor our souls. We look back to the finished work of Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. And with great joy, we embrace this Melchizedekian priest. And we recognize that he is our high priest forever. Let's stand for prayer. Father, that's a, that's, a, that's a ton of information. That's a lot of technical information. That's a lot of history. And, and yet, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you recorded it for us so that we know from beginning to end, from Genesis to Hebrews and beyond, that Jesus is our great high priest. He was promised after the fall, in fact, at the fall, first promise of the gospel and that thread of the gospel that the thread of the cross of Christ runs through scripture ultimately fulfilled in Jesus and we don't look forward we look back with great certainty with 
a great assurity of the forgiveness of sin because of who Christ is and what he has done. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.